Good morning. Please turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're continuing our study of this book. Dave Silvernail, Dave Dorsey, and myself went to General Assembly this week. We heard lots about the recession and its effect on various churches and ministries. Many churches uh, did not send their pastors to GA because uh, they said they didn't have the money. I really want to thank you. I'm only a part-time pastor here, and yet you paid for my airplane ticket, my hotel, my $400 conference registration fee, my meals, and uh, wow, thank you very much. That was very gracious of this church. I appreciate that. We are looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. God has two rooms, a courtroom and a family room. The only way to get out of the courtroom is for God to justify you, and the only way to get into the family room is for God to adopt you. Can I please have the slide projected? I want you to imagine someone who does believe in Christ. God the Father does, in fact, justify or forgive that person. He does adopt that person into his family. He becomes a child of God. You imagine that person in the family room now enjoying his new father. Very good. But then uh, eventually the person says, well, what's next? I'm here in the family room now. And uh, one answer to that question is our sanctification, a big word that means that God takes a person and changes them so that year by year, decade by decade, that person becomes more and more like Christ. Thank you. You can turn that off. That is what our passage is about this morning. It is about sanctification. Now, my great fear with any passage like this, this is a, essentially a list of do's and don'ts, or, or in correct order, a list of don'ts and do's. My, my great fear is that I give a moralistic sermon. If I ever, if I ever preach moralism, I mean, may God strike me dead on the spot. Moralism is the belief that the Bible is essentially a big uh, list of do's and don'ts, that the stories in the Bible are fables with a moral at the end, and that if you try your best to be, oh, hateful word, moral, that uh, you will score points with God and basically earn yourself a place in heaven. Now, uh, I understand that that is how non-Christians treat the Bible, and indeed that is how I was taught to treat the Bible— uh, I grew up in a liberal Protestant church. I was taught to treat the Bible moralistically. 
that the Bible is essentially a, a list of morals, and if you try your best, then, uh, then you're okay and you're in with God. And what was, was life-changing for me after I became a Christian is, uh, in particular, I, I learned the correct way to interpret the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. I'd always been taught uh, by my, the church I grew up in that, that the Sermon on the Mount is basically a summary of how to earn your salvation. Okay, that is what I was taught in my church. And, and it was life-changing after I became a believer when, when I was told that the Sermon on the Mount assumes that the hearer is already a believer. It assumes that the person hearing the sermon is already a Christian. Okay, it is, it is three chapters of instruction to people who have already been forgiven, who have already been adopted. Three chapters of instruction on how to bear the family likeness, on how to be more like God. It was just a life-changing realization for me. And, and what I want you to understand before we discuss what is literally a list of do's and don'ts is that this passage also assumes that you are already a believer. It assumes that you know, have accepted, received the gospel of grace, that you have been justified by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone. I'm not here preaching moralism. I am trying to help myself and help you grow in our sanctification to become more like the Savior who has freely saved us. We do not seek to obey this to earn the favor of God or to repay it, but simply to please our Heavenly Father, who has been delighted to own us as his own. But given all that the Father has done for us in Christ, it is fitting that we seek to live lives pleasing to him, and this passage reminds us how to do so. You'll recall that there are two types of sins, sins of commission and sins of omission. Sin of commission is doing something you're not supposed to do, a sin of omission is not doing some duty you are supposed to do. If I steal my neighbor's lawnmower, which I was tempted to do last month, the, that would be a sin of commission, doing something I'm not supposed to do. If my neighbor is sick and I refuse to mow his lawn for him, that is a sin of omission. I'm not doing a positive duty that the law requires. I, I teach the Ten Commandments in eighth grade, and I love it when the lights go on in their eyes, and we're going through the Ten Commandments, and, and so many of them think it's just a list of, it's just all about uh, sins of commission, stuff you're not allowed to do, not supposed to do, when they realize that every Ten Commandment also is about duties required. I mean, the light goes on. It's, it's, it's great to see, you know. Uh, do not murder means I, I actually have to care for my neighbor's body, and uh, do not commit adultery means I actually have to have sexual relations with my spouse. And uh, the Eighth Commandment means I actually have to work and earn money. The Ninth Commandment means I actually have to speak up. And the Tenth Commandment means I actually have to be content. Oh, oh, happy moment when, when, when a, a student finally understands sins of commission and omission, that the positive duties required by the law. Now, I bring that up because uh, I want you to recall the, the simple definitions of holiness and love that I've taught you previously. Basically, to be holy means to avoid all the sins of commission. If you if you don't do the stuff you're not allowed to do, you are holy. That's holiness. And if you do the stuff the Bible requires, the duties required, that is love. Uh, overly simplistic definitions, I realize that, but nevertheless useful here. Uh, avoid all the stuff you're not allowed to do, that's holiness. Do all the stuff you're required, that is love. And our passage speaks about both here. Verses 3 through 8 encourage us to holiness, and verses 9 through 12 encourage us to love. Uh, added together, you get the full requirements of the law. If we grow in holiness and in love, we grow in our sanctification. We become more like Christ. 
Now, uh, in this particular passage, uh, Paul gives one specific area uh, in, in each section of the passage. He, there's one specific sin he wants us to avoid, and that's the sin, of course, of sexual immorality. And there's one specific way of loving each other that he wants us to do, and that is getting a job. Uh, the two are related. If you look at verse 11, that we are to work with our hands, that's one very practical way you love your neighbor. If you're not working, you're not loving. And they are connected because if you are busy working with your hands, guess what? You don't have time to commit sexual immorality. We wake up every morning with exactly enough time to do every task the Lord has planned out for us and not one minute's time more. If you do everything God wants you to do that day, guess what? You're out of time. You go to bed. You say, hee hee, I didn't commit sexual immorality. Why not? Because I was loving my brother, and specifically loving my brother by doing my job. Now, given that our culture still values hard work, but no longer values sexual purity, I've chosen to spend the remainder of our time this morning focusing on verses 3 through 8, which I would like to read again, this time in the New International Version. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. There are six uh, specific topics under the, the appearance used to call it uh, heads, headings in, in your sermon. There are six specific heads I wish to discuss under this topic of sexual purity. Pornography, premarital sex, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, and dualism. And uh, as was mentioned last week, this is a sermon uh, addressing a fairly mature topic. So if, uh, if you do have a young man or young woman here that, that you think... Uh, Perhaps should not be here. This is the last chance before we we jump into this. It's not going to be a graphic sermon, but nevertheless, it is a mature topic. First of all, on the subject of pornography, I ask with you, please, to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. While at General Assembly, the commissioners heard a report on the state of pornography in the United States today, We learned that there are 250,000 new pornographic websites created every day. 250,000 new ones every day. That the average age of initial exposure to pornography is age 11. And that by the age of 17, 80% of American students have been repeatedly exposed to hardcore pornography. 80% by the age of 17. Some uh, in our culture consider it wrong. Some don't. Uh, The Bible is clear that this is uh, a sinful thing, that if if you're involved in pornography, you are committing sexual immorality, the thing that is forbidden in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. And uh, I would like to share just one reason why I believe it is wrong, and that is found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I realize a whole sermon could be given against pornography. I wish to just 
give one reason why I believe it is wrong. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. According to this, is it just men that are made in the image of God? No, it is women, every bit as much as men, who are made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Anything that treats women as an, as an object, an object for gratification, is, is an attack against the image of God. It is not properly honoring the image of God, which is borne by women every bit as much as men. Uh, it, is, it is my great desire for myself and for every person here that you would so value women with any less dignity and respect that they deserve. They bear the image of God, and they need to be treated that way. Let me challenge uh, those of you who are women here. One very practical way that you can fight against pornography is to refuse to buy or read women's magazines. The magazines that are sold at grocery store checkouts. I mean, if, if you took a Christian from 100 years ago and planted them in a grocery store today and they saw those, what would they call those magazines? Pornography. There'd be no hesitation in their mind that that's what they would call them. Okay, what do, how do those magazines treat women? as objects, okay? The, the great irony, of course, is that they're supposedly for women. I, oh, happy day if, if we could walk into a grocery store and not see any of that stuff. I think there is one grocery store that doesn't have them in the checkout lines. Praise be to God. Uh, I, you know, unbelievers are always talking about how, you know, we offend them doing this, we offend them doing that. Why not fight back, ladies? Are you willing to go to the manager of your grocery store and say, this, this offends me. You know, this is unacceptable. This is treating me like an object. And I am made in the image of God. I encourage you to do that. Guys, uh, just one very practical thing on the topic of pornography. You can't beat something with nothing. What are you supposed to do instead? Well, according to this passage, you're supposed to get a job. Okay? And if, if pornography is a temptation, go get another job. Okay? <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh, happy day to see some guy just stumble through on Sunday morning. I'm so tired. Why? I'm working two jobs. Why? Because I want to be holy. Mm. Praise God. Yeah, I'll let that brother fall asleep in the back. Amen. <laughs> totally. Do you realize that if all the time spent in the pursuit of pornography were spent in some sort of productive labor, the economic recession would end overnight? would result in such a drastic increase in worker productivity, our economy would grow like never before. That's our first topic this morning. Our second is the topic of premarital sexual relations. If you'd please turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Please turn to Exodus chapter 24. I like action movies. The best action movies, of course, are where our hero saves the damsel in distress. Yay. But what grieves me so much about many modern action movies is that what do the man and woman proceed to do at the end of the movie? They sleep together. 
the, the implication is that if you save her life, you have a right to her body. And that is a lie. You have saved her life. Is she free to peck you on the cheek and say thank you and never see you again? Absolutely. The only way you have a right to a woman's body is if you marry her. If you covenant with her. And the reason for that is because we are made in the image of a covenantal God. Please look with me at Exodus 24, beginning at verse 1. This is at Mount Sinai, a few months after God has saved Israel out of Egypt. God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Basically, this is preparations for a wedding ceremony, which is about to happen in the next few verses. Moses got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, first youth group in the Bible, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, those are the wedding vows, read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God and Israel are now officially married. They have entered into covenant together. And only now, only after they are married, does the bride get to enjoy her husband. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. God saved them out of their slavery in Egypt. Was that enough for them to have a relationship with God? Was that enough for them to enjoy God? And the answer is no. They still had to enter into a covenant with God to bind themselves to him. And only then... Only then could they enjoy their new husband. That is God's plan and pattern for sexual relationship between a man and a woman. It is intended for marriage. It is intended for marriage. The Bible acknowledges no state between being single and being married. What are you right now? Are you single or are you married? Our culture says there's something in between. The Bible does not. May I challenge you, those of you who are single, if you're touching someone, you're touching one of two people. You're either touching your future spouse or you're touching someone else's future spouse. If it's your future spouse, wait. And if it's someone else's spouse, how dare you touch another man's wife? You say they're not married yet, so what? He's going to marry her one day. Guys, I hope, I hope that the thought of some guy out there touching your future wife on some date infuriates you with a godly jealousy. If that does not make you mad, there is something wrong with you. Preserve all the single people around you for their spouses. Sex is intended for marriage. Third, I'd like to talk just briefly on the subject of adultery. Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. This is uh, one of the few areas of sexual purity that it seems our culture by and large still thinks is wrong. Obviously, there are exceptions. But it seems the majority of unbelievers still think that 
there's something wrong with breaking faith with your spouse. This is what Proverbs 5 has to say on this topic. Looking at Proverbs chapter 5, the only book in the Bible intended for children, written to children, from your heavenly Father. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress or an evil temptress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to hell. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain may be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full, full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. As a new Christian, I was instructed on verse 8 about keeping to a path far from her. And I can't remember the pastor who taught it to me, but he explained the decision Billy Graham made early in his ministry. He said that Billy Graham decided that he would never be alone with a member of the opposite sex, other than his wife and his mother, of course, okay, uh, ever for the rest of his life, period. And he kept that. And I was really inspired by that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you should do that, okay? I'm not playing Pharisee and trying to load laws or rules on you, okay? What I'm saying is I found that very helpful, okay? And I decided that I will never be alone with a member of the opposite sex, ever. You say, that's hard, isn't it? Well, yeah, totally. Okay, I mean, I was a youth pastor for many years. I can't tell you how many times, you know, picking up students, taking them home, either a girl was the first to pick up or a girl was the last to drop off. Guess what? My daughter Galadriel drove hundreds of hours with me on those trips, okay, uh, so that I could never be alone with a girl. If I'm in my classroom at school and a girl walks in between classes, what do I do? I walk out, okay? It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Uh, again, I'm not saying do that, all right? What, what I'm saying is that I take this very seriously to keep to a path uh, far from her. I encourage you to do the same, to guard your marriage, to protect it. Uh, I know many women. I do not have any female friends, and I'm okay with that, okay? I have a lot of guy friends. At least I hope I do. Uh, uh, but uh, as, as far as female companionship, uh, praise God for my wife. And uh, uh, guys, I encourage you to... Uh, to uh, consider that as well. Guard your marriage. That was the topic of adultery. Fourth, let's move on to the topic of divorce. Please turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Looking at Malachi chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me uh, remind you of a, a verse in Ma Matthew 5. Jesus says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of God. 
Basically, what Jesus is saying there is that we Christians who believe in salvation by grace alone have to be even more holy than people who believe in salvation by works. We who believe in salvation by grace alone have to be even more holy than people who believe in salvation by works. If, if, you, if you pulled 100 random non-Christians on the street and said, which group of people in America are most committed to sexual purity, lowest rates of divorce, lowest rates of adultery, highest rates of uh, both being virgins on the day of their marriage, what group do you think they would pick? Mormons. They'd pick Mormons. That's unacceptable. We who believe in salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, are supposed to be even more godly than the people who believe in salvation by works, like the Mormons. If you don't think Mormons believe in salvation by works, read the first few chapters of the second Twilight book, New Moon. She's a Mormon. Mormons believe in salvation by works. That's why they're so committed to sexual purity. They believe they are earning their salvation. We who do not believe it's possible to earn your salvation are supposed to be even more holy than they are. We're looking at Malachi chapter 2 on the topic of divorce. I have a very hard time discussing this topic. Um, I always pray that I not come across as hateful or judgmental. My mom's on her fifth marriage right now. My mom was divorced when I was one, when I was eight, when I was 11, and when I was 22. All right, so I've been hurt very deeply by divorce, and I'm always afraid I'm just going to bring, you know, anger or just my issues into the pulpit here. So if that comes across, please forgive me here. Okay, we're discussing uh, divorce here, uh, Malachi 2, starting at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. On the same topic of divorce, please turn also to Matthew chapter 19, which is actually the very next book in the Bible. Here in Malachi, next book is Matthew. Now listen, I, I realize I'm not telling you something you don't already know, but again, that's the purpose of the First Thessalonians passage, is to tell you things you already know. I mean, that's what Paul says in the first two verses. He says, I've already taught you all this, you already know it, and so I'm going to tell you again anyway. I realize you know that divorce is wrong, that sex outside of marriage is wrong, but our culture is certainly saying something very different, and it does no harm to us to remind ourselves quite clearly of what the scriptures teach on these matters. We're looking at Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What's the biggest cause of adultery in our country? It's probably divorce. Okay, now understand clearly how I asked that question. I didn't say that adultery is the biggest cause of divorce. So that divorce is the biggest cause of adultery. Okay, because according to Jesus here, if you get divorced and get remarried and you didn't have legitimate grounds for the divorce, what sin are you committing? You're committing adultery. Uh, I've, I heard uh, one pastor once refer to the American church as the church of serial polygamy. The church of serial polygamy. That means uh, a guy doesn't have three wives all at the same time, but he has one, and then he divorces her and gets another, and divorces her and gets another. So he still ends up with multiple wives. The church of serial polygamy. Oh, happy day. Happy day when I can point to my church and say, the Mormons are nothing compared to us. You think the Mormons have a low divorce rate? Look at our church. God is keeping the couples in our family together. What he has bound together, no man is separating. You can come and look at the marriages in my church and see an image of Christ's relationship to his church. Christ does not divorce his wife, neither do the men of my church. May that day come. Fifth, the topic of homosexuality. Please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus is the third book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. One of the favorite quotes my seventh graders learn in studying Genesis, of course, is that God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yes, that's right. Why did God destroy the city, Sodom and Gomorrah? It was for the sin of homosexuality. It was not for a lack of hospitality. It was for the sin of homosexuality. That's what liberal Christians teach, that, it, it was, that they, they were inhospitable to the angels. So God killed them for that. Please. Um, what is the traditional word for homosexuality? Sodomy. It comes from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality was a big issue at General Assembly this year, uh, much to the surprise of many. Uh, several states have uh, passed laws allowing gay marriage. And some churches are already being sued for, in those states for not allowing homosexual marriages in their facilities. And those pastors from those states got up and said, you know, we as the PCA, we have got to get stronger position statement documents out there to provide legal protection for these pastors. The sermon I'm giving right now, it could be illegal in five or ten years. Okay, remember, there is legislation right now in Congress to label this hate speech. You know, and, and there are pastors in other countries in Europe who have already gone to prison for speaking out publicly against homosexuality, for saying it's a sin. It could happen here. I certainly hope it doesn't. I don't think pastors will go to prison, but churches might get sued and get all their property taken away for not allowing gay marriage or not allowing homosexuals to be hired onto their staffs, which is also an issue. The person could then sue for discrimination, okay, if you don't allow a homosexual to be a Sunday school teacher in your, in your church, okay? Many people in our denomination are worried that that's coming, so that, that ended up being a big issue in, uh, at General Assembly this past week, trying to uh, strengthen our denominational position on this matter. What does the Bible say? Leviticus chapter 20, beginning at verse 10. 
If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. What they have done is a perversion. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man marries with a woman and her mother, it is wicked. Both he and they must be burned in the fire, so that no wickedness will be among you. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death, and you must kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal to have sexual relations with it, kill both the woman and the animal, they must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, I don't have time to go into the whole, you know, how do you apply Old Testament law to New Testament today? Okay, we're not getting into that. The point is, is that, is that what was the penalty required in Old Testament Israel for these things? It was capital punishment, okay? So obviously God took these things very seriously. Does, does the Bible ever forbid something that you don't have a choice in? Does it ever forbid being tall or short or smart or not so smart or pretty or ugly? Does it ever forbid those things? Of course not, because you have no choice. The fact that the Bible forbids homosexuality means that it's a choice. It is not genetic. You know, it's actually impossible to make it genetic. Think about this. Let's assume we're evolutionists. Let's assume we're evolutionists for a sec, okay? Okay, according to evolution, okay, random genetic mutations happen that pr provide the altered creature with a what? A reproductive advantage, which then enables it to survive because it's now fitter than the ones who don't have that reproductive advantage. Let me ask you this question. Would, would a genetic mutation that provides a, a, a tendency toward homosexuality provide a reproductive advantage or disadvantage? It's, it's so laughable, this idea that it could be genetic. It is not genetic. It's a choice. People choose to be homosexual. Now, the reasons they make that choice are complicated, but nevertheless, it is a choice. No one is born homosexual. Now, you say, what about all these studies? Well, let, me, let me remind you how the scientific community works. If you think there's this impartial scientist, unbiased and above the fray, and I'm just going to report whatever results I get from my experiment regardless, I'm like, please, you've got to be kidding me. Okay? I mean, they want their funding. They want their next grant. You have to bring in results that are politically correct or you lose your funding. The politically correct position right now is that homosexuality is genetic. So lo and behold, people are, researchers are starting to say it's genetic. Okay? They have to say that or they'll get fired. It's a choice. And according to this passage, the choice of a very wicked sin. God loves homosexuals. Homosexuality is a sin. It is not an acceptable alternative lifestyle. Sixth and finally, I would like to discuss the topic of dualism. The topic of dualism. Dualism is the belief that matter is evil and spirit is good. Dualism is the belief that matter, stuff, is evil because it's matter. That matter is just inherently evil. And that spirit is good. The uh, two most famous proponents of this view were Plato and Aristotle. They were hardcore dualists. Their thinking heavily influenced the early Christian church. The church very quickly became dualistic in its thinking. Well, sex involves what? It actually involves the body and the soul, of course, but, but uh, it most uh, obviously uh, involves the body. And so very early on, the church, influenced by uh, Neoplatonic thinking, decided that sex is evil. 
that not, not just sexual sin is evil, but that sex itself is evil, okay? That sexual desire is evil. There's something wrong with that. Please turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Please turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Who made sex? God did. And what does he say about it after he made it? Verse 31 in chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. We do not get our theology from Plato and Aristotle. We get our, our theological foundation from the Old Testament. And according to the Old Testament, God made everything. Matter, energy, your soul, all of it. And it was all very good before we screwed it up. In fact, one of the traditional differences between a Roman Catholic and a Protestant is that a Roman Catholic would feel guilty about sexual desire, and a Protestant would not. That the Protestants just didn't have sexual hang-ups, that they enjoyed sex, that they, that they were not enslaved by Plato and Aristotle. And of course, one of the great ironies, if, if you've read any of the recent studies on sexual behavior in America, which group of Americans is having the most sex? Evangelical Christians. By far. Which group is happiest with their sexual relationships? By far. Evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians. Uh, having a hang-up over sex, treating it as something evil or bad, is also a sin. It is also a sin. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's not enough to avoid sexual impurity and say that you've obeyed the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. There are positive duties required by that commandment as well. The Bible commands you to have sexual relations with your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's be crystal clear here. The Bible commands you to have a physical relationship with your spouse. It commands it. Physical relationship between husband and wife is something created by God. It is a good thing. Let me return to something I said earlier, that you can't beat something with nothing. It's not enough just to say to people, you have to be sexually pure. Okay. How? All right. What is the Bible's answer to that question? How? What does it say? You get married. You get married. Oh, I heard this conversation. I can't remember who was talking. You know, it was talking about two people who, who were thinking about getting married, and, and uh, they said, but, you know, they're thinking about waiting, you know, until they get their jobs all in order, you know, start making money. And, and, the, and someone else hearing this conversation, you know, was like affirming, like, that's a good thing. You know, the idea that you should wait to have your financial ducks in order to get married is a lie straight from the pit of hell. What do you care about more, parents? Do you care more about your children's standard of living or about their holiness? I am perfectly happy if my children get married at 18 and live in a tent. So what? We're peculiar people anyway, right? We might as well... 
just go all the way and be completely nutty. I'd love to see a young married couple, 18 years old, walk through the door. They're so tired because they slept in a tent and it rained all night. And they fall asleep in the back. I will let them sleep. Because of their commitment to holiness. I mean, the Bible doesn't say, well, you just have to grin and bear it. Give me a break. Okay, one, of the, one of the main ways that Satan has promoted so much sexual impurity in our culture is this idea that you have to wait until your late 20s to get married. You say, well, wait a minute, if, if, we, if, if people actually got married younger, we'd have to train them differently as parents, absolutely. Absolutely. But did parents used to train their children so that by that age they were actually ready to get married? Yes, that they had the spiritual and emotional maturity. You say, but they didn't have the earning power, so? So they can't, they can't obtain the certain st minimal standard of living? So what? A million years from now, your child will not care where they live the first five years of their marriage. They will care whether or not they were virgins on that day. You can't beat something with nothing. Oh, happy day when all the Christian schools in America, colleges, have married student housing. Happy day. The vision I present to you is one in which we are a church in which the people don't view pornography. Everyone's a virgin the day they get married. No one commits adultery while they're married. Every couple has a very happy, fruitful sexual relationship. No one gets divorced. All the homosexuals have repented and are no longer practicing homosexuality. And no one for a moment thinks that there is something evil or wrong about sexual desire. To conclude, please look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Please look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are gathered here today not as a group of people who have all the answers, not as a group of people who are more godly or more righteous than those who do not know God. We are gathered together as a group of repentant sinners. We have sinned in this area as well as in other areas. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's a beautiful line. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is no sexual sin beyond the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't care how big it is or how many times you've committed it or if you're enslaved to it this very morning, you turn to Christ, he will forgive you in full. He died for people who commit sexual sins. Praise be to God. That is good news indeed. May he free us from its penalty. May he free us from his power. Let's pray.